you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church, so you can make your way out of the uh, assembly this morning. For the rest of us, let's take our Bibles. We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. You know, this letter to the Hebrews... It was addressed to people who were facing a difficult situation. Many had been raised in Judaism. And so when they turned to the Christian faith, their community that they had been a part of, and even their families rejected them for that change. They placed tremendous external pressure on these new converts, seeking to draw them back into the faith that they once embraced, and the system that they once observed. But there was also an internal pressure on these new converts. You see, for many of them, the comfort of having a religious system where it was based on ritual became something very difficult for them to deal with. They needed to make a break with that ritual and that concept that it was doing that ritual that made them right with God. And they needed to embrace the truth of the Word of God, that it is God's grace and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that transforms us. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews writes here in the ninth chapter about the importance of understanding this transition we make from a religion that's filled with regulations and rituals to a new type of relationship with God, one that's based on relationship alone, not on ritual at all. So let's look at this text. As we come to it in the first part of this text, we find that the Word of God is telling us that there used to be a religion that was based on regulation, and it was oriented toward rituals that only granted a limited access to God. And what we find as we look at this recap that the author of Hebrews gives us, uh, he, he gives us an insight into what worship was like according to the Old Covenant. And notice he starts to share with us here in verses 1 through 5, A little bit about that, just a brief synopsis. Now, bear in mind, he's sharing with us in about five verses what about, oh, this much of our Bible covers. So understand that what he's doing is giving a very brief survey, but let's look at it. Notice it says right at the beginning, here in this first verse, that the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Now, as we looked at the 8th chapter, we saw that there is a difference between the earthly sanctuary where these regulations, where these observations went on, where these rituals went on, and the true sanctuary that is patterned after in heaven. The sanctuary where Jesus Christ took His own precious blood and applied it for our sin. A big difference between the two. So the writer of Hebrews is returning to this theme, but he's beginning to talk about how the old system was structured in such a way that man really got the idea that God is holy and that I as a sinful man can't approach Him 
in any way on my own merits. What we find is he begins to talk about this worship system. And notice the second verse. A tabernacle was set up. Now, what he begins to talk about is the tabernacle that was built and structured in such a way that it communicated some important things about God. First of all, it communicated to man that God is holy. Listen, nobody could walk into the tabernacle on a given day and say, hey, you know what, I think I'm going to just walk right into the tabernacle and walk right into the holiest place of the tabernacle and talk with God and tell Him a little bit about what's going on in my life. He couldn't do that. What we see in this text is that man had no ability to go into the presence of God apart from what God had prescribed, apart from what God had said, these are the things that you must do. This is the way that you approach a holy God. So that communicates something else that's very important. Man is sinful, and that separates him from a holy God. The tabernacle was really a statement That sinful man can't come to a holy God on his own terms. He has to come the way God has established. He has to approach God only in what God has said. And that's important for us to grasp. It's important for us to understand that that was communicated, and that's why the tabernacle in part was set up, to establish that with man. And then something else that we find about the tabernacle. It communicates that death and blood are the only things that cover man's sin. See, when there's a holy God and a sinful man, death is the result. And so, once a year, as we go into this text, we find that the tabernacle had a means for man to take the blood of a sacrifice and apply it for the sin of the people. Now, when we look at the tabernacle, what we find is a diagram concerning what was in there. We have the outer court of the temple. There were places of sacrifice and washings here. And then there is the tabernacle itself. There was the outer area where you had the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, the incense altar. And then there is the holy of holies. A curtain separated these two areas of the tabernacle. And then there was the Ark of the Covenant. This is what the writer of Hebrews is about to share with us, and so that's what we want to understand. Notice what the text goes on to say there in the second verse. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table of the consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. Now, not everybody, every Israelite could walk in to this area. Nobody could walk into this area except priests. Only the priests had the ability to go into the area that contained the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the incense. And what we find is even these pieces of furniture that we look at in this area of the tent, the tabernacle, the temple, these had some specific things that they communicated that God wanted the people to understand. Even though the majority of Israelites never even saw these things, they knew they were there. And they knew that there was symbolism. Now let's talk about a couple of these. First of all, the lampstand. The lampstand contained seven lamps that were fueled by oil. And part of the responsibility of the priest 
to go in and make sure that the oil was maintained in those lampstands so that they burned continuously. The idea of this lampstand was a reminder to the people that they are the light to the nations around them, that they are followers of Jehovah. And as followers of Jehovah, they were to be a light to others. Just as the lampstand lit up that outer room, so they were to light their world. And what we find is Jesus is the ultimate representation of this lampstand because Jesus Christ said the following. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you realize when Jesus said that in the Gospel of John, he was right in the temple courts, right outside the temple, right outside where the lampstand was held. And he was saying, that was a partial reminder to you that you're a light to the world, but what Jesus was saying is, I am the ultimate light of the world. I am the ultimate light that reveals who the Father is. So there's symbolism, there's meaning there. But that meaning only takes us so far, as we'll see. Then there was that table that we talked about, the table of showbread. Now, no one really knows what it looked like. Maybe this one has more gingerbread on it than the original. We don't know. But we do know this. There was a table, and there were 12 loaves that were placed on this table. And each one of those loaves represented one of the tribes of Israel. And it was there to remind people of something very important, that God provides and sustains for the nation Israel. All 12 of the tribes, God provides for. Now, we're reminded of a statement that Jesus made in the New Testament. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never grow weary, and he will believe in me, or hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. What the Scripture is reminding us of in this text is that very statement that Jesus makes pointing back to the idea that he is the provider now, in the immediate context of John chapter 6, it was manna that Jesus was speaking of. But there's a broader understanding that the showbread shows that God provides, and he provided ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we go back to the temple, we also see something else, the curtain. In between the outer court and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, there was a curtain. Now, this was a very special curtain. It's not like your drapes at home. It's not like your shower curtain. Some estimates would put it at about four inches thick. This was one thick curtain that separated the holiest place from that outer place. And here's something amazing. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, guess what happened to that curtain? According to Matthew, it says this, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And, and look at the symbolism of this from top to bottom. God coming down to man, saying that this curtain that has separated us no longer in place because of Jesus' sacrifice. As soon as Jesus gave up his spirit, the curtain tears and it says the earth shook and rocks split. 
So here in the old system, you have a temple that's set up, that's put in place to where God is definitely separated from man. Look at what the text goes on to say in this passage. After talking about the first room, it says in verse 3, Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. Now, the NIV translates this, the most holy place. You've probably also seen it translated as the holy of holies. And here's what the Word of God says was in this holy of holies. Verse 4. It had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. Now, when we come to verse 4, some people have some difficulty with the first part of this because it says that there was a golden altar of incense. What we find in the Old Testament is that golden altar of incense was actually on the outside of the Holy of Holies. So what's going on? Here's what we need to understand. There was a golden altar of incense that was on the outside in the outer room. But what the priest would do is take a censer, place some of the coals from the altar of incense, put it into the censer, and carry that censer into the Holy of Holies. As he was going in once a year to minister the blood that he had gotten through the sacrifice to the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, he would carry that censer with him. And here's what's interesting. In the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word that is translated golden altar of incense here is actually the word that they used for that censer. Now, the censer was something that looked very much like this thing over here on the left, or I guess it's left on both sides. (laughs) What we find is it, it, it was a pot that had a chain, and the coals would go into it. And so the priest would carry that in. And then notice the Ark of the Covenant. Now, again, we have no idea what it looked like. This is a replica. But notice how the Ark of the Covenant is described. Verse 4. You had the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant, and this Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. In other words, the actual stone tablets that God had written the law with his own finger on for Moses. All of this was in the Ark of the Covenant. But most important is what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant were cherubim. These are representations of angelic beings. And just under the cherubim, when the priest would go and get blood for a sacrifice, he would take it and he would apply it to what is called the mercy seat. That blood would be applied for you and for me if we were Israelites back in that day as a symbol of the fact that all of the sin that I had committed during the course of that year had to come under the blood of that sacrifice. So the writer of Hebrews gives us this quick blow-by, and he talks about all of these things. Notice the fifth verse goes on to say, Above the ark were the cherub of glory and overshadowed the atonement cover. But then he just sort of cuts it off and says, But we can't discuss these things in detail right now. Now, some of you are probably saying, Phew! Glad that's in there. Pastor would have gone on and on about all this stuff. But as we come to the next part of this passage, we find the point that the writer of Hebrews is driving at. 
you have this structure that's set up so that it's communicating to man. You have a holy God. You come to God on His terms. You don't just walk into the Holy of Holies one day and say, hey, God, I'm here. You would be struck dead if you did. As a matter of fact, even when the priests went in once a year, they had bells sewn on the hem of their garment so that if they messed up and dropped dead, they wouldn't hear the bells tingling and they had a rope around their ankle so they could drag him out if he messed up. Can you imagine what went through the priest's mind as they're putting bells on him and tying a rope around his ankle? How would you like that job description? Quite a statement of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the fact that you come to God on God's terms. And that's what the old law communicated. That's what the old covenant wanted people to understand. And verse 6 begins to go into the restrictions that existed for the common man and for priests. Look at verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So day in, day out, you have this area with a huge curtain that separates where you minister daily from the very holy place. And so these priests could only enter once a year into the most holy place because look at verse 7. But only the high priest entered into the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. Do you see what this text is telling us? God had restrictions, requirements. The law was there put in place to show man that sinful man can't come to holy God by his own works or even by the blood of an animal. He can't be made right with God. It was a reminder that we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. And so daily, as that priest would go into the outer room and he would minister and he'd look at that curtain, he had that visual reminder that that separates him from a holy God. And that's exactly what the Old Covenant wanted to communicate. That there has to be another way, a better way, for a person to know God. And we know this because when we come to the 8th verse, look at what verse 8 says. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Now, I like the way the English Standard Version translates this a little bit better. To me, it's clearer. Look at how it's translated here. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, as long as you have this separation between the holy place and the most holy place, there's a message. And that message from God is that there needs to be something better. There needs to be a way that opens the way from the outer to the inner for all of man. Remember that passage in Matthew that talked about the curtain being torn? Gains a whole new meaning, doesn't it? 
God tore open that way through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was telling people throughout the Old Covenant, there's got to be more. There's got to be a provision. Really, they were looking forward to God's provision. They understood that their sins were being covered by the sacrifices and the system that they followed. But they also understood that they weren't completely dealt with that God needed to provide for them in that as well. And so the passage continues. When we come to the ninth verse, we find that the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that rituals never cleared the conscience of the worshiper. Look at what verse 9 says. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Now, what the Word of God is communicating to us in this passage is important. Every time that someone brought a sacrifice to be offered by the priest, every day of atonement, as they knew that the priest was going into the most holy place, and as the scapegoat was released to go out into the wilderness, people understood that they were still breaking God's covenant. That covers what I did for that year. But come next year, we're going to have to go through this all over again because I'm going to mess up. I'm going to sin. I can't keep the covenant of God. I fall short. And that's what the whole system reminded us of. Man cannot, in his own efforts or in his own way, come to God. And you know, really, that's what religion lies to us about. You can either have religion with a sense of you coming to God on your terms and saying that God should accept it, or you can have a relationship with God where you come to God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and you are accepted by the Father on the basis of what the Son did. Those are your options. What the writer of Hebrews is driving home is this. You can't do it yourself. You can't earn enough. You look at every religion outside of Christianity, and what's the common denominator? Do these things and earn God's favor. Every one of them. You have to do enough for God to accept you. What the law teaches us is you can't do enough. You will fail. You can't do what is required to be accepted by a holy God. And so the writer of Hebrews is masterfully bringing this home, and he talks about the very conscience of the worshiper. Now, what is a conscience? When we look at the word in the original language, conscience carries with it the idea of knowing inside. It's like that inner person, that inner voice that tells us, hey, What you did was wrong. That's our conscience. Now, our consciences can become insensitive. It can be seared. But what we need to understand is this. We have a conscience that tells us all the time, don't do it, don't go there, don't be that person, don't behave that way. So inside we know that we never make it. Inside we know that we sin. 
And the conscience of the worshiper that went through this system was never satisfied. Because he knew that he couldn't measure up to the law. That's what brings us to the 10th verse. In the 10th verse, the writer of Hebrews talks about a change. And it says this, These are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. External regulations apply only until the time of the new order. He's making a transition. He's saying, look, all of these things that were done in the past, all of these ways that man tried to behave with righteousness so that God would accept him, they were just external. They couldn't cleanse within. There was always that sense, I can't make it. That's why Paul wrote this in the book of Colossians chapter 2 where it says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to religious festival, new moon, celebration, or Sabbath day. Now, these are all things associated with the Old Covenant. He's talking to Christians. And look at what he says. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is those things are in place until the new comes. And what Paul is saying in Colossians is Jesus is the new that came. He fulfilled all of those things so that we could be right with God. What a wonderful argument he builds in this. And then we come to verse 11. And in verse 11, we find teaching concerning the redemption that Christ grants us for eternal access to God. And notice he begins it by talking about how we're redeemed eternally through the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. Jesus entered by the power of his blood. Not by the blood of the animals that were sacrificed as the high priests who had gone before God before brought, But now Jesus Christ comes with His own blood. And not to the earthly sanctuary, but to the heavenly one. And He offers His precious blood because there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Power to pay for those sins. Power to, to make us right with God. That's what the text is telling us right here as we look at this. Because look at what verse 12 goes on to say. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood. I love the way this states the permanence of what Jesus Christ did for us. Once and for all. Old system, annual sacrifice. New system, one time Jesus offers himself for us. And it's done, once and for all. And what that says to me is something vitally important. You can't add to what Jesus Christ did. His blood is sufficient. 
It satisfied the holy God where all of the works and all of the sacrifices of the past fell short. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfies a holy God once and for all. And look at the last part of that passage. Verse 12, having obtained eternal redemption. You know what it means to be redeemed? To be redeemed means that we are released from an obligation. The particular word used here for redemption is a unique one. It means that you are no longer condemned. You are no longer held by that system. You are set free from it. Jesus Christ breaks the chain that held us by the old covenant. And this is a wonderful promise. Turn to Jesus Christ. Stop counting on yourself your own personal performance, your ability to win God's favor, and when by faith you trust what Jesus did for you, you have eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. In other words, it's perpetual. It's something that He has completely obtained in the past, and it has ongoing ramifications for us. We are eternally redeemed. So that when you fall short, and you will you have the redemption of Jesus Christ to cover that sin. Now, there's great hope in this. This is a precious promise from God's Word to the child of God. You no longer have to try and earn your way. You no longer have to wonder, boy, have I done enough? You no longer have to look at yourself and say, I know good and well I haven't done enough. You can look at what Jesus Christ did and you can say, He did enough. On that I can count. I know that Jesus has provided for my eternal redemption. This is a blessing for us. This is a promise from God's Word. But then the text goes on. And when we come to the 13th verse, we find the shortcomings of religion that only provides outward cleansing. Look at what verse 13 says. The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. Now, I think the language of this passage is significant. Religion takes care of us outwardly. I get to feel good about myself because I just did this and I feel that I've accomplished something, so I feel that probably in the long run God will accept me. You still have that conscience back there saying, no, he won't. But on the outside, you're saying, I did my obligation for the week. I went to church. I did a good deed. Plug in your favorite thing that you like to say you did to feel good about yourself. It still falls short. It's only outward cleansing. You never cleanse from the outside in. You know, when Jesus was involved in his public ministry, there was a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were champions for the external change. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs that were clean on the outside and inside full of death, dead men's bones. You can't change from the outside in. That's what religion tells us. Reform yourselves. Do these things and you'll become spiritual. That's not what the Word of God says. We can't change from the outside in. God must transform us by the power of Christ's blood from the inside out. 
Paul said this in Romans. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We've all been there, haven't we? We look and we say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And lo and behold, for about a week, we pull it off. But apart from the power of God to transform us and change us from the inside out, it doesn't happen. The writer of Hebrews drawing this contrast wants us to realize that we shouldn't hold on to a religious system that's based on rituals or human performance, but turn to a relationship that's based on the provision of God. And then we come to the 14th verse. The 14th verse reminds us that real cleansing comes through the power of God and the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. If these goats and bulls and ashes of heifers ceremonially cleansed somebody, look at the question. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Now here we're talking about true transformation. If a dead critter could take care of you for a year, think of what the blood of Jesus Christ would do for you. The eternal Son of God. The God-man who shed His blood for you and for me. The point that the writer of Hebrews is making is, this is power. The power to transform. The power to change. The power to make us right with God. And look at what else it does. It cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death. Now there's some debate among commentators as to what this means when it says cleanse your conscience from acts that lead to death. One interpretation is it's talking about the fact that we sin and our conscience is activated. And we're constantly wondering... Will God truly forgive me for what I've done? When you are under the blood of Jesus Christ, you're going to fail. You're going to misstep. You're going to stumble. You don't have to have this accusatory conscience saying, you think God is going to accept you after you did that? All of us have felt that from time to time. When we do something that we know is, is wrong, and we look at it and we say, oh, how can God keep looking at what I'm doing and say, you're forgiven? So our conscience accuses us, and what happens? We feel a break in our fellowship with God, and we start to wonder, am I ever going to get things right with God? And then the accuser of the saints, Satan, comes along and says, no, you won't. Give up. Go back to the old life. You're messing up the new one. It could possibly refer to that. But from the context of this passage, the view that makes more sense to me is that it cleanses our consciences from a dependence on human performance. What it's saying in this text is when we 
count on the blood of Jesus Christ, we no longer have to go to that old system and say, if I do enough, God will accept me because we have something radically new and different. Counting on the blood of Jesus Christ, not my personal performance. So we're cleansed from that conscience that accuses us. And then look at the last phrase of that verse, verse 14. So that we may serve the living God. Listen. When you're doing things to somehow gain God's approval, I would submit to you that you're not serving the living God, you're serving yourself. And here's why. I'm giving this service to get something from God. However, if you approach it with a heart of gratitude and worship, you say, by the blood of Jesus Christ, I've been cleansed, and I stand right with God, and I'm not doing this to earn God's favor because I already have it. I'm doing this out of gratitude and worship. That's when you're truly serving the living God. That's when you're really coming before God and saying, I'm doing this for your sake and your sake alone. Not for what I get out of it, but for what I give to you. That's a radical change in our thought process. So much of religion says, do this and God will respond to you. And it's kind of like, do this and here's the response. And, you know, that, that's all we live by, all we know. But here the Word of God is saying, you're cleansed from that way of thinking. Don't think that way anymore. But understand that you serve the living God because you've been cleansed. This doesn't clean you. It's evidence of the cleansing. And so that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to live in this way. He wants us to trust the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, what He's given for you and for me, and trust that that cleanses me for all eternity. Jesus Christ's blood is the only thing that's sufficient to cleanse our conscience. We can't do it ourselves. But then we come to the last part, verse 15, and with this we close. The 15th verse talks about how we are ransomed by Christ and set free from the Old Covenant. Look at verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Do you, do you hear what this passage is saying? Christ has brought a new covenant. Not the old one where you do the prescribed things and hope that you somehow make it, but a new one where you're coming and you're saying, Jesus Christ ultimately fulfilled the old covenant and He offers me His righteousness through His blood. We come understanding that as the mediator of this new covenant, we now have the promise of an eternal inheritance. You know, many people who do not understand the doctrine of grace will tell us you're being presumptuous in saying that you know that you're going to heaven and that you have an eternal reward. No, we're not being presumptuous. We're being biblical because the Word of God has revealed this and we put faith in what God has said. My eternal redemption rests in the provision of Jesus Christ's blood. 
And that's really driven home in this last phrase of verse 15. Because look at what it says. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. We can really look at it like this. God's grace breaks the chain that held us. At the close of the service, we're going to be singing a setting of amazing grace that talks about how our chains are broken and we're set free. And really, that's what this text is communicating to us. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been ransomed. The debt that we owed because of our sin under the old covenant, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it means that we've been ransomed. We've been delivered from the condemnation that we were under. Listen, if we could have done enough under the old covenant to earn our own salvation, look at what the Word of God says. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. It's a powerful verse. If I could earn my way to God and have God accept me by what I did in my personal performance, then why in the world did Christ come and die? If I could do it on my own, I have no need of His blood, no need of His sacrifice. But He came because we couldn't. Paul looked at his own personal struggle with sin, and this is what he said. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's that passage that's really hard to read where it says the things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, those are the very things I do. I purposely left out that reading because it always gets my tang tangled. But I want you to look at this. Who's going to rescue me from all of this? From this struggle with sin? Verse 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. That's what Jesus accomplished for us by his blood. As we look at this text, we find that there are two approaches to God. The Old Covenant with its laws and rituals that never brought you into the very presence of God and only condemned you and showed you where you fell short. Or the approach of the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. We come to God not on our own merits, but on what Christ did. And we're left with a choice. For the person who has not yet come to Christ, you can continue in seeking to gain God's approval and God's favor by what you do. That's your prerogative. But here's the problem. It always falls short. If you choose to be judged by the law, then God will judge you by the law. The book of Revelation says so. You'll be judged by what you've done. But you will fall short, is what the Word of God tells you. Or you can come by the way of grace. You can accept the blood that Jesus Christ shed for you that washes away your sin, that ransoms you, that redeems you. And you can find deliverance from the condemnation and the bad conscience. And you can find a new life in Christ where he transforms you by the power of his blood. 
Christian, understand this. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what the Word of God tells us as believers is this. If you've been bought by the blood of Christ, you're no longer your own. You've been redeemed. You've been bought by that blood. And you have responsibility to the Father. So serve the living God. Not seeking to gain His approval, but seeking to worship Him because that attitude of gratefulness, of gratitude, only makes sense. And when we serve the living God like that, it's freeing. If you're trying to serve the living God by your own efforts, you're going to burn out. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to quit. But when you serve the living God because you look and you say, I'm his child, I have eternal redemption through him, and I want to honor and please him, it's transformative. You change, and you're set free. That's the life that God has for us, and that's the life we should pursue. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that it is to us that we have been delivered from an old system of condemnation, falling short of consciences that accuse us, and we've been delivered to an eternal inheritance and the right and privilege of serving the living God in freedom. We praise you for it. God, how we thank you that because of your amazing grace, our chains are broken. We're set free. In Christ's precious name, amen. Please stand to